What has Christ left us here to do? For the next 100 Sundays, we want to pay attention uh, to our core mission as a church. And our core mission as a church is to become disciples who make disciples for the glory of Christ. It is simple. Become disciples who make disciples for the glory of Christ. We want to talk about following Christ and then helping others follow him as well. So to begin, what I would like for us to do is to consider the commissioning passages in the gospel accounts. We're going to spend uh, time over the next month in each of the gospel accounts where Jesus commissions his disciples beginning in Matthew Matthew 28. If you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to Matthew chapter 28, and you'll find that on page 835 of your church Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please avail yourselves. Take the copy there that's in the pouch in front of you and put your name on it, and, uh, and it's yours as a gift from this church family. What I would like to do is to read the entire chapter, Matthew 28, 1 through 20, and the title of my message this morning is simply this, The Engine of the Great Commission. The Engine of the Great Commission. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. and Ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, 
liter literally all days to the end of the age. This is God's word. Now, did you notice in Matthew 28, the last paragraph is subtitled, The Great Commission? Is that what that reads in your Bible? The Great Commission. Now, technically, the words great and commission are not in the text. Uh, so where did that come from? Who coined that term, great commission? Well, I just had to look that up. And evidently, um, a Dutch missionary named Justinian von Welts in the 1600s was first to label this passage, this last paragraph, the Great Commission. And then 200 years after that, a missionary by the name of Hudson Taylor actually popularized and promoted the term. So there. Uh, but it's actually quite recent in the history of Christianity when you think about it. It, was, it wasn't until the 1600s that this phrase, Great Commission, was coined and promoted. And then I started asking, why? Why Great Commission? In other words, what, what's so great about the Great Commission? I mean, isn't the idea of going out and... and you know, making disciples and trying to convert people and proselytizing. I mean, isn't that offensive in our diverse and pluralistic culture? I mean, isn't that a form of oppression or colonialism? Who are we to say that our faith is the one true faith? You know the cultural mantra of the day. You may say you're right, but you can't say I'm wrong. <laughs> what makes the Great Commission great? Well, our scripture verses answer those questions. And they begin at the top of Matthew 28 with two women who were mourning a future they realized wasn't going to happen. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, we believe that's Mary the mother of James and Joseph, they, they're rising before dawn. They are mourning the death of Jesus. They had gone to grieve over a future that wasn't to be. On Palm Sunday, the future was bright and rosy and regal as Christ entered Jerusalem triumphantly. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And on that Friday, he was crucified like a criminal, executed, a slave's death on a cross. The cross had crushed their hopes, and these were defeated disciples that morning. And I have to pause and wonder how many of us have come to this place this morning and your soul's defeated. And you're grieving over something that you had hoped would happen but are now convinced never will. You thought your job would keep you in town. You thought you'd get favorable results from your doctor. You thought you'd be accepted into that 
school or that program. You thought you'd get that promotion. You thought your child would bury you. These ladies went to the tomb to honor the life of the one they loved. They went to anoint the body. They went to mourn what would never be. It's dark at the top of Matthew 28. Here's the thing about tombs. We get there, and, and often we just don't know how to leave them. We go to the tomb, mourn the tomb, and then we don't know how to leave the tomb. We don't know how to envision another future than the one we'd hoped for. And I'm right there with these ladies. I'm right there with them. And when that happens, the tomb then begins to define us and then confine us and then imprison us. And then we get stuck. We are entombed in this tomb. Is there a word from God for those who don't know how to leave a tomb? Is there a word from God for those who find their identity in a past that cannot be changed and a future that they thought would occur, but but by all evidence, it does not seem it's going to occur. What does God have to say to such souls? Verse 2. Behold, look, see, their dark world came alive with loud sounds and bright lights. Matthew tells of earthquakes and rumblings and the appearance of the Lord's angel. The celestial messenger materialized effortlessly moving the stone from the tomb of Jesus. He was like lightning, not a common occurrence in Israel as we in Illinois, but this was a bright, fierce, mighty angel arrayed in snowy white. And after rolling back the stone, what did he do? He just hopped up on it. The stone became a throne. And I picture his feet dangling there. Do angels wear sandals? Or can they go barefoot? Did his feet need a pedicure? What is that? He's grinning at the guards, right? It's just so effortlessly grinning at these guards. Boom! Those those battle-hardened Roman guards, crusty, chiseled, calloused, combat-ready. But when the earth quaked and the angel appeared, they quaked. They shook, verse 4, they shook, they shook and became like dead men, which means they fainted. <laughs> oh, that's, do you get the irony of it all? The ones stationed at the tomb to guard the dead guy themselves became like dead guys while the dead guy was very much alive. That's what Matthew's trying to tell us. And then the angel spoke one of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture, Right? What is it? Fear not. <laughs> fear. First thing an angel says is, fear not. Has to. Because when the angel shows up, we're quaking. Fear not. The angel said to the women, verse 5, do not be afraid. 
For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that literally he has been raised from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Do you see, do you see what's happening here? A chain is beginning to form through which a message is passed. First the angel to the women, then Christ to the women, then the women to the disciples, then Jesus to the disciples, then the disciples to the world. But here first God chose these humble women as his ambassadors. Mary Magdalene has been called uh, by... Um, Oh, just by so many Bible teachers and, and by history as the apostle to the apostles. These ladies came to the place where dreams die. And instead, they received a command and a commission. Command and a commission. Come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. In that order, first come and see. That's why the angel moved the stone. You don't think the angel moved the stone to let Jesus out. Jesus doesn't need that help. The angel moved the stone to let us in. So that we can see. See, there's nothing here. There's nothing here in this place for you. Come and see. Now, go and tell. Go and tell the disciples to get to Galilee. There you will see him. And quickly they bolted. And their hearts were flooded with both fear and joy. Verse 8. With fear and great joy they ran to tell his disciples. And then the most unexpected thing happened. Seven steps into their obedience Jesus appeared. Sit in that for just a moment. Seven steps into their obedience, Jesus appeared. Some of you are seven steps away, seven steps of obedience from a divine visit. You know that. You're seven steps away from answered prayer, you're seven steps away from a miracle, from a miracle. You're seven steps away from, from, from a, a game-changing encounter. But you will never know that if you stay at the tomb when you've been told to leave the tomb. You've been told to go. Go and tell. And had these women ignored the angel's message, they would have missed Jesus. You realize that? Verse 9 says, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now just pause there. <laughs> do, you see, do you see how low-key this appearance of Christ is? That's why I really think it happened. I mean, if, if Matthew wanted a fictitious story to sound real, he wouldn't have told it this way. I mean, isn't Jesus the star of the show? Well, doesn't look like it from this description. I mean, the angel's the one that gleaming white and lightning and rolls away the stone, frightens the Romans' guards. This is not what we see when Jesus steps on stage, right? 
It's just matter of fact. He appeared. He greeted them. It's about, it's about as simple as, good morning, church family. I've missed you while on break. That's it. No, no Garth Brooks going through the grand piano entrance. And no fog machine and no parachuting into packed stadiums. Jesus meets them. Jesus greets them. <laughs> but they fell to, but something happened because look, they fell to their feet and worshiped him like the disciples did in Matthew 14, when Jesus stilled the stormy sea of Galilee. The disciples cried out, truly you are the son of God. Listen to me, the last people on the face of the earth would be orthodox, monotheistic, Hebrew worshipers of Yahweh. The last people to do this would be those people. And yet their experience with this resurrected God-man compelled them to believe that God had in fact come in the flesh, in Jesus of Nazareth, who removed every barrier for them not to believe. Christ overwhelmed them with evidence. Verse 10, do not fear. Go and tell my brothers... Which brothers? Well, the brothers who had lived with him for three years. The brothers who had heard him teach. The brothers who had witnessed his miracles. The brothers who had argued amongst themselves as to which of them was the greatest. The brothers who had vowed never to desert him. The brothers who in fact did desert him. And the brothers who were hiding at that very moment in fear for their lives. Jesus calls them Brothers, He didn't say, go tell those traitors, or go tell those cowards, or go tell those losers. You go tell those brothers. Is that not good news? Some of you wonder, have I gone too far? Have I gone too far? Am I, am I outside the reach of God's grace? You know, or, okay, I'm allowed to be in a place like this, but I mean, you know, there's class A Christians and class B Christians, and I'm in the, you know, I'm at the back of, I'm, I'm at the back of the plane, you know, stained, ruined. I wonder how many of us really think that, it, just in, in, the, in the most, you know, unconscious ways. Um, so I told you, 78 degrees in Door County. So I thought one afternoon, I'm going to go play golf. It's 78 degrees. I mean, this has got to be a good round. It's 78 degrees. So I go, I get paired with this guy. And, you know, I don't, I don't pass out my business card the minute I see someone on the golf course. So, you know, I just introduce myself. You know, who are you? Well, I'm Randall. Who are you? Oh, I'm Phil. Great. Hi, Phil. But I know that the question's going to come. I know it's going to come. Sometimes it happens on the first hole. Sometimes it happens on the last hole. This time it happened on the sixth hole. It was on the sixth hole. I knew, the, I knew it was going to come, and it came. So what do you do? What do I do? I pastor a church in Champaign, Illinois. The guy pauses and says, you're kidding me. <laughs> I said, you know, I get that a lot. Yeah. I know, you were thinking male model, right? I mean, so, so no. 
I said, yeah, yeah, true story. I'm a pastor. I said, what do you do? He said, well, I, I'm a retired police officer. I said, really? I said, well, my son's a police officer. So we had a connection. And uh, we kept playing. Two things happened. First, he changed his vocabulary. <laughs> Seri I'm serious. Oh, that was a blessed putt. <laughs> That's what he said. A blessed putt. <laughs> It's not what I would call it, but anyway. <laughs> Seriously. And, and, then, and, then, and then he said, he said, well, listen, I just, I just want you to know, I, and I told him, I, I told him at the end of the round, I said, you know what, uh, thank you for your service um, to your city. And he said, you're welcome. He said, thank you. He said, he said, he said I appreciate your work helping all of us other sinners out. I appreciate your work helping all of us sinners out. And he said that twice. And I finally said, well, thank you. I said, look, you know, where I pastor, I try to remind the congregation that all of us are sinners. And so is the pastor. So you've come here for the first time. To whom have you come? You've come to a congregation of sinners. And the pastor is one too. All of us. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, the only people God uses are broken people. I mean, look at verse 17. Even after they're on the mountain and they're worshiping Jesus, what does it say? But some doubted. So Christ commissioned those despite their doubts. And why does he do that? What big idea coming your way. You see, the engine of the Great Commission, the engine of the Great Commission is not your effort. The engine of the Great Commission isn't your striving. The engine of the Great Commission isn't your earning. It's not your power. It's not a quota. It's not how many baptisms you, you chalk up. That's not the engine of the Great Commission. You know, one of my concerns as we unroll this emphasis over the next two years is that, you know, it's going to come across as a do more, try harder, you know, and I'm up here, you know, haranguing the church to come on, come on. And that's, that's not the engine of the Great Commission. That's not. It's, it's not have you gone enough, baptized enough, taught enough, obeyed enough, do more, try harder. That's not the engine. Let me tell you what the engine of the Great Commission is. The engine of the Great Commission is the mighty resurrection. That's what the engine of the commission is. That's the engine. There, there is no Matthew 28, 16 to 20 apart from the resurrection. There's none of that. And too often we kind of separate it and we need to go back to the tomb. Come and see always comes before go and tell. And perhaps some of the reason why we feel exhausted is that we've not come and seen. We've not looked into the tomb. Or maybe we're afraid of looking into the tomb. We're afraid, well, you know, if everybody else says this is just a myth, and then, you know, then maybe this is a myth, and, and I don't want to hear that, and so I'm going to go off into my, and I'm not going to follow the truth wherever it leads. <laughs> or we're afraid to look into the tomb because if it is true, then a resurrected God-man has the right to make some demands on my life. 
There is no come and see without first. Uh, without a come and see, there's no go and tell. It always goes in that order. And mind you, the truth of this great commission you know, always battles the false commission. Did you see the false commission in these verses? It's verses 11 through 15. It's the deception which the enemies of Christ spread. They who opposed him when he was alive wanted to oppose him there at the tomb. And they spread this tissue-thin story about a stolen body while the guards slept. And we'll keep you out of trouble, they said. Why would he have to say that? Because those guards would have been put to death for sleeping on duty. That was the penalty in that day. So now we're confronted with two. Two narratives. Which are we to believe? Well, Christianity always tells us you, you follow the truth wherever it leads. This, our faith is fact-based. And we know for a fact, historical fact, Christ died. Christ was crucified. Historical fact, Christ was buried. Historical fact, on the third day, the tomb was empty. That's a historical fact. There, scholars do not debate that at all. We know for a fact the testimony of witnesses who say they experienced the resurrected Christ. We know for a fact their changed lives. Angels told women, who told the apostles, who told the world. And 30 years after the resurrection, this Jesus community of 120 had exploded across the Roman Empire. And 300 years, listen, 300 years after that, 60% of the Roman Empire was Christian. That's a fact. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? Verse 6 explains it. He is not here, for he has risen. For the resurrection is the engine of the commission. And you remove the resurrection and there's no commission. No resurrection, there's no mission because there's nothing to tell. There's no gospel. Christianity is the announcement of one whom the cross cannot hold. And that's why the truth comes to us in verses 16 to 20, against that false narrative of 11 through 15. And just as the word see, S-E-E, -E, dominates in verses 1 through 10, did you notice that? Behold, see, seek, you will see him, see I have told you. See in verses 1 through 10 becomes all in verses 11 through 20. All is the dominant word in verses 16 to 20. All authority, all nations, all I have commanded you. I am with you literally all days to the end of the age. And they meet on that mountain in Galilee. A lot happens in mountains in Galilee in Matthew's gospel. The temptation of Christ occurred on the mountain as Satan takes Christ up to the top of the mountain and offers him kingdoms that he, has, he doesn't own to give. The Sermon on the Mount there in Galilee. And what about the transfiguration in Matthew 17 where Moses and Elijah meet with Jesus on a mountain. Now his disciples do the same. And Jesus' first words on the mountain, all authority has been given to me. 
This echoes what Matthew says earlier in 11.27. Matthew 11.27. All things have been given to me by my Father. All authority. Christ has authority to heal, to command, to judge, to forgive sins. Jesus, once handed over to the power of others, now has power over others. And I wish, church family, that I could... I wish there was a way with words. How can I speak in such a way to help you feel that the risen Christ has more authority than the executive office of the United States of America or the legislature of the United States of America or the Supreme Court of the United States of America? I wish I could, I wish I could get you to feel that, 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 that Christ's authority supersedes all powers of Congress, all powers in Washington, all powers in Moscow, all powers in Beijing, all powers in London, Paris, Berlin, Tokyo, that if you gathered all the authority of all the governments and all the armies in the world and put them on the scales and then put the authority of the risen Christ on the other scale, these would go up quickly. Because he is not here, he is risen. Risen Christ has the authority to tell every man, woman, and child on this planet what they should do and think and feel. He has absolute, uncontested authority over cities and states and nations and over your life and mine, whether you believe him or not. <laughs> and hear me. Once you see and feel his total integrity total wisdom, total love, total truth, and total power, why wouldn't you want to submit to that authority? The resurrected king gathers his followers on a mountain in Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. Make disciples. How? By appealing to the world to follow Christ. That means going, going, verse 19. And that word implies a diplomatic mission. <laughs> our mission is diplomatic. Our mission is not to conquer, but to proclaim the name of the one who has conquered. And for some of us, that means ministry vocation in a church planting situation or, or cross-cultural ministry missionary activity. And for all of us, it means viewing your job as the mission field. Kina Aragon is a wife, mother, and artist who said, there's no station in life so small that God can't use it for his glory if my aim is to serve him as I serve others. Going, baptizing, this tangible dramatization of identification with Christ's saving, renewing, restoring power that in Christ we proclaim Christ as our primary identity and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine. Reconcile broken relationships. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Invite the poor to dinner. Love your enemy. The, the simple commission is not about you know, getting into heaven way out there. It's about bringing the life of heaven Right here. It's about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. 
And Jesus says, behold, he see, there it is. He combines behold and all. All days I am with you forever. Remember back in Matthew 1 when Christ promised birth? Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 28, I am with you all days because the commission is a co-mission. I am sending you and I am accompanying you. And so when you have to await the results of your labs and you start feeling anxious, your king says, I'm with you. When you have to walk down the hallway for a hard talk with your child, you remember your king says, I'm with you. When you're at lunch with your coworkers and they're cynical about religion and they put you on the spot, you remember your king says, I'm with you. When you're getting your hair cut and your barber asks how you are and then you enter a spiritual conversation, your king says, I'm with you. I'm with you in the emergency room. I'm with you in the funeral home. I'm with you in the grave. I'm with you at graduation. I'm with you on the sixth hole. I'm with you when you get a promotion. I'm with you. And that will never change. That will never change, ever. The engine of the Great Commission is the mighty resurrection. So for the next 100 Sundays, we want to emphasize what a disciple looks like and what it's like to go and to share this otherworldly news. But first, we must come and see because there's no go and tell without a first come and see. And when we come and see, we will learn that Christianity is not about moral improvement. It's about resurrection. And our message is that Jesus' resurrection affirms that his path is the path and he is on the path with us. And the path of Christ is a life and a congregation and a community spent in selfless service and self-sacrificing love. We only listen, we only live when we die. And we only grow when we give our heart away. And that's what I wanted to tell you this morning. And then I want to tell you this, and then I'll pray. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen.